This is the Education Gadfly Show. To stop saying that, that Obama doesn't know what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. <laughs> what does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me welcoming my co-host, the Marco Roboto of Education <laughs> Policy, Roberto Pondicio. You know, we have to stop saying that, that Obama doesn't know what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. <laughs> you know, I have noticed, Robert, that you, are, you stay on message. I mean, you have been staying on message for years now. Ever since I've known you, it's all core knowledge, content knowledge, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Well, it's like, come that, on, Mike. you but, seem but so we, scripted. But we really need to, to remember that Obama knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing, and particularly when it comes to education policy. Right? He knows exactly what he's he doing. He knows exactly what I'm he's doing. See, you you, you dub me this now. I'm, I'm going to run with this. Excellent. Very, very good. Okay, Robert. Wow. An exciting week in politics, an exciting week in education. Lots going on. Let's start by playing Part in the Gadfly. Clara. Fordham is releasing its long-awaited assessment report later this week. Mike, without revealing the findings, what makes this one so important? Uh, it's reveal the findings. so hard. I can't reveal the findings oh. because the podcast comes out on Wednesday and the study comes out on Thursday. So let me just say this. First of all, if you're listening to this on Thursday or later, go to our website find out. Report. Look, we have been reviewing state standards for almost 20 years. Since people, the earth cooled. Right. Okay. Very first report Fordham ever did, 1997, State English Standards by Sandra Stodsky. Who? Okay, so we have been at this a long time, and all along the way, we would have loved to have reviewed the tests that go along with the standards. Sure, right? because, because that's what really matters. Because that's what matters. We always know that, hey, if teachers figure out what's on that test, and if sure. it's a lot different than what's in the standards, they say, well, forget the standards, throw the standards out the door, I'm yeah. being held accountable to the test. Absolutely. Right, that's probably why all those years we would find that some states had these great standards, and yet weren't making any progress in student achievement. Tom Loveless found this too. Well, probably because the standards didn't matter. It was on the test. But the idea of actually being able to review 50 state sets of state standards was impossible. We could never do it. You mean 50 state tests? Uh, I'm sorry, the yeah, test. Yeah, exactly. We could never review the test. Partly because it was overwhelming. Partly because in order to do this work, you've got to actually get in behind the curtain yep. and look at real live test items. And the test makers have very little incentive no. to let you well, under the hood. And the states uh, back in the day weren't right. going to say, oh, sure, the Fordham Institute. Right. You guys, yeah, every two years, in. tell us how horrible our standards exactly. are. Come in and look at our tests. Right, right. Well, so, you know, flash forward, Common Core happens, and then these new assessments get underway. Parks, Modern Balance, ACT Aspire. Uh, and somebody says, you know, somebody should go in and, and evaluate these tests and see somebody if they're should. any good. Somebody did. Uh, we thought about it. We were kind of daunted by it, again, because, you know, we're small think tank. This is a huge project mm. and undertaking. Plus, everybody knows we support the Common Core. Would they take uh, our findings? seriously. Long story short, we did it. Uh, and we did it with lots and lots of partners. A methodology uh, developed for this project by the, the National Center on Assessment, uh, working on seeing if these tests are aligned to the criteria established by the Council for Chief State School Officers that were designed to help states, when they are choosing assessments, mm -hmm. figure out if they are well-matched to their new standards. And so, uh, you know, we used several dozen reviewers. We had some fantastic uh, scholars involved, including Morgan Polakoff, uh, Nancy Dory, many other people that you can find uh, in, in the report. 
report itself. Uh, it was quite an undertaking, Robert. And, and, I, and good for these folks to, for allowing this level of scrutiny. Absolutely. I mean, this really is, talk about public a- accountability. Yeah. You're exactly right. And I say this as a, as a teacher. Yeah. The, 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 it's not the standards, it's the tests that drive classroom practice. Uh, so you've got to know, yeah. are these tests, you know, good, better, uh, yeah. or, or somewhere in the middle. And, and, and special shout out to ACT. They, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. uh, probably more so than Park and Smarter Balance. Look, Park and Smarter Balance, they, you know, they were developed with federal sure. funds. They are kind of a public utility. They have no reason to shield this. ACT right. did not have to participate. They did, uh, and good for them. And so what people are going to be able to find out, Robert, is a couple of things. First of all, you know, how well matched are these assessments mm-hmm. to uh, the standards? Uh, but also some issues around quality. Are, are the items of high quality? Are there different kinds of items? Uh, and the level of cognitive demand that mm-hmm. they expect from students. And, and we looked at that in grades five and eight in English language arts and math. Another group called Humro looked at this for high school. It's, uh, I think, going to be a very interesting study for people to look at, and and we hope uh, will have an impact on decisions that states make around their assessments. As, yep. as you know, this is a field that's very fluid. I mean, we've still got 40-plus states sticking with the Common Core, not always calling it that. Uh, the assessment uh, field is much more fluid, and it, we expect it to continue to be so. Hey, here's our big hope, is that any state uh, should make sure that, that their uh, test goes through some kind of evaluation like this, but not from us, because we're never doing this again. <laughs> Done. Look, look, it almost killed us. Let me say one thing, uh, and I did not work on this report so I can be as impartial as anybody at Fordham, but the idea that somehow Fordham has some skin in this game, yeah, okay, that's fine. On the other hand, if you're a Common Core Standards advocate, you have every reason to be uh, rigorous in evaluating the test because that's if the right. tests are no good, the standards come to no good. That's right. And if, if the tests don't match the standards, then again, the standards, which you may like a right. lot, will be ignored. That's exactly right. All right. Clara, topic number two. A new study says that the number one reason that low-income families make tech purchases is for their kids' education. Is that significant? Robert, you seem to be excited about this. Well, I kind of am. I mean, look, you know, you got to be skeptical about this because as you pointed out uh, before we started the podcast, do we really know what's driving purchases? You're you're relying on people to tell you. But if low-income families and Hispanic families in particular in this finding are telling uh, researchers that the number one reason that they're purchasing technology is for their kids' education, come on, that's that's great news. That's that's only to be celebrated. We talk a lot, a lot here around our halls about uh, the striving classes and the need to make sure that they get what they need out of our education system. Uh, so this shows that uh, the strivers are alive and well. God bless. No, I, I like that idea. I just don't know. Look, are, are you know are they being totally honest about why they're getting these computers? I mean, I would say, oh yeah, I, sure, I bought that iPad, you know, for educational purposes, <laughs> really? right? Then you be lying. And I then did not it's buy a, my daughter's smartphone or iPad for well, education. Well, that's it, right? And you say, <laughs> okay, sure, some of the time they're on a game that could be considered educational. But like, of course, you know, it's a constant struggle yeah, these but, days and trying to say, uh, you know, I, I have to all the time have this negotiation with my kids. First, are they allowed to do screen time? And if they are, are they going to watch the, you know, stupid Disney yeah. show or are they going to watch something like Wild Kratz that sure. will actually teach them something? And look, what I would want to say to every low-income family is, you know, lear- learn the lesson from me because, you know, I had the same idea and it's kind of, I, I regret it. I, I really, if I had my, my daughter 17 years old, if I had her childhood to live all over again, I would greatly restrict screen time. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Without a doubt. I don't know any parent who doesn't feel that way. But look, the more serious issue here is even if this is, you take this at face value and and they are using this for educational reasons, uh, that's not, to your point, um, the same thing as a sophisticated take on what educational use is for these devices. So if they're in kids' hands, low income, high income in between, God bless. Uh, But now we need to do a lot better job of educating 
educating parents about screen time, about what a high value use of, of technology mm-hmm. is, etc. It's not merely, you know, back in the day, we all said, oh, put, put screens in kids' hands, put them in the classroom, and good things will happen. That's a kind of a 20-year-old idea. We all know that doesn't work. Topic number three, Clara. Teach for America celebrated its 25th anniversary this past weekend. Mike, you noted on Twitter a certain lack of political diversity among the speakers. <laughs> is TFA lurching to the left? Is that a problem? So I can't be sure because, uh, you know, there were over 100 speakers. I, I looked at the list and, well, you know, a lot of people are teachers and others who very well may have been, you know, conservatives, Republicans. I don't know. But in terms of the name, you know, people who are sort of have n- names you would know in the policy world. Yeah, I counted three. Well, maybe two. Two, two or three uh, known conservatives slash Republicans on the list. list. Three known conservatives. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> exactly. It's a McCarthy thing, and it's probably upsetting to some people. How, they probably wonder how do we let those people in? Exactly. Uh, you know, poor Marty West, probably one of the only Republicans at Harvard, and now he's the only Republican oh. at Teach for America. Yeah, yeah, uh, you, just, you just have to out Marty. I just Very outed nice. Marty. Sorry, I know. Marty. Not not fair. Not fair. But hey, so uh, look, I joke about this, and but also. I do worry. Here's the worry. I I see groups like Teach for America are very worried about protecting their left flank. They're getting attacked mercilessly from the left, uh, you know, for being into, quote, corporate reform, you know, and for supporting charter schools and and all the rest. In the same way that you see Arnie Duncan and the rest of them got attacked from the left. And so they're so focused on trying to demonstrate their bona fides, in part for Teach for America. Look, their their application rate went down. And there's some evidence that is partly because there are some college kids, you know, who are feeling the burden or whatever, you know, who look at Teach for America and say, ah, oh, well, I would never do that because that's... tired of working that's, for the man. That's part of, That's just the man, right? And right. so uh, here's the problem, Robert. If, if all these education reform groups keep lurching so far to the left, I yeah. fear that they are going to lose the right. Okay, but hold on a second, Mike. I mean, I, I was going to joke about this saying, is TFA lurching to the left? Like, no, it was born on the left. Um, you know, we've, we've discussed this issue before, and I think it's something that we need to talk more about. Uh, I'm not sure that the education reform movement at large was ever perceived at its origins as a left-leaning social justice movement, but let's not kid ourselves. That's exactly what it has become for a very, very long time. The language of the achievement gap, the mm-hmm. language of of, um, of equity and equality, these are not just dog whistles, these are slogans that are, yeah. are profoundly attractive to, to social justice warriors, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. Uh, folks who are attracted to organizations like TFA are committed to these ideas. That's not a bad thing, but where is it written uh, that, that the education reform movement is exclusively a so-called social justice movement. There, as we've discussed, if there's any lesson that we've taken from Trump voters uh, in this election cycle, it's that there are boxcar numbers of white working class, not necessarily left-leaning Americans, yeah. who are just as poorly served by the education system as low-income black and brown kids. Right, right, right. And, and look, and you've got a lot of energy now coming from the Black Lives Matter sure. movement that has had a big impact on TFA and, and yeah. on education reform. But again, that can be a polarizing issue. And, and the worry is that, you know, a lot of these reforms, they depend on legislative support from Republicans. In a lot of these states, Very good point. you need to have pretty much all the Republicans and at least a few Democrats mm-hmm. in order to maintain support for charter schools, for Teach for America, for a lot of the reform agenda. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we just, if, if these folks start to take Republicans for granted, frankly, yeah, yeah. Uh, they could lose them. And I think that uh, they just have to be aware of that. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's just an issue and it's a balancing act. And, uh, you know, I just don't see a lot of effort to keep groups like TFA from continuing to lurch from the left. Yeah. So hey, Mike here's really my here's my attempt. Mike is handing out pearls, TFA. Listen up. All right. That's all the time we've got for Pardon the Gadfly. Now it is
is time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. David Griffith, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Mike. David's here in, in Amber's place this week. She is a little busy with the assessment report that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. So you are here to talk about what? Uh, the Research Minute, Mike. Uh, the 2015 Education Choice and Competition Index, uh, which was put together by Russ Whitehurst of the Brookings Institute. You know, we need to tell Russ. He needs to work on the title. Uh, he does need to work on it a little bit. It's got the word index in it. Yeah, yeah. You know, but let's face it, Russ, Russ, pretty straight-laced guy. Although, if you get to know him, he actually has a, a very wry sense of humor. Uh, but yeah, we, uh, Russ, work on the title. Uh, but what else do we think about it? Well, so we like it. Uh, and it obviously, it's similar to Fordham's own uh, Choice-Friendly Cities report. Um, what a great title that one was. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, with some key differences. Um, so, Brookings... Like title. Uh, Brookings, yes. Brookings looks at the 100 largest districts, so not cities, uh, in the country uh, and ranks them based on how much school choice exists. Um, And, uh, you know, they focus on some similar things like um, the types of school choice, uh, choice friendly transportation, common applications. Um, But there's also some interesting differences just in terms of emphasis. Um, Brookings, uh, their metric is weighted a little bit more towards public choice. Mm -hmm. um, And uh, they have a very uh, heavy and interesting uh, focus on information. So of their uh, 13 indicators, five, by my count, have something to do Mm -hmm. with just sort of the availability and quality of information information, which I think is interesting. Well, you know, c- coming from a guy, R- Russ Whitehurst used to oversee the National Center on Education Statistics. Maybe this makes some sense. It may not be so surprising. Yeah. So uh, so the big winner this year, uh, just to cut to the chase, uh, is Denver. Um, it didn't actually finish first. That is New Orleans again. Um, but Denver moved up several spots to second, making it the highest performing or highest ranked large district in the country. Um, and Brookings sort of holds up Denver as the real model for other districts. Not New Orleans. Well, they, the point he's trying to make is that uh, you know, not every city is going to be hit by a hurricane. So, oh, uh, look, I'm, I'm actually pleased because I've made this argument here at Fordham that you know, hey, all hail New Orleans, but come on, that is not a national model, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so Denver's a big winner, um, and um, th- th- there's there's an interest, some interesting points in the report that sort of accompanies the rankings. Um, it focuses a lot on uh, open enrollment um, and how to design these systems so that people are happier with them, uh, and it really goes sort of all in on this notion that behavioral economics um, can sort of resolve the tension between uh, sort of what policymakers want to design in a perfect ivory tower to make a fair choice system mm-hmm. um, and the politics of choice um, and how people respond to that sort of thing. So, people, Can you say more about that behavioral economics? How does that manifest itself as a practical manner? Sure. So it's basically this idea that you can, you can gently nudge people without actually telling them what to do. So a good, a good example is um, Boston's open enrollment system. Essentially, uh, people can choose whatever school they want in Boston, but if you as a parent go to choose a school, uh, you will essentially be given a pre-populated list of eight or eight or nine schools. Interesting. Yeah, that are presumably, I, I haven't looked into it too de- deeply, but presumably they're close close to your house, okay. um, and they're reasonably high performing, and yeah. so they're sort of you know... So they're priming the pump a little bit. Yeah, yeah they're priming the pump, and then if you want to, you can opt out of that, and you can see the full list of 100 schools uh, if okay. you want to. And I think, um, I think this makes a lot of sense. I agree. Um, and uh, I 
I, I just think it can go a long way towards sort of helping people mm, get used to the idea of make more informed choice sure, yeah. or better choices sure. yeah yeah, and not freak out Good. I like it well I, I am curious David what are some of the things that we went into you worked very much on, on our report our, our sure. choice report what, what are some of the indicators we went into that they did not um Sure. So we, we, I think, looked a lot more at uh, kind of the ecosystem and uh, organizationally. So uh, things like, um, you know, NGOs and um, funders. Uh, and, and we also, I think, to be t- perfectly frank, uh, Fordham may put more of an emphasis on charter schools mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of what they need, the supports they need to really be a part of the public choice landscape. Um, so and, and we I think what really distinguished our report was we had this survey um, that we gave to people uh, that really asked them about the politics of choice, which we thought was important. I mean, asked them how mayors and so forth. Right. Uh, Try to get some of the nuance that you can't get uh, just by looking at numerical indicators alone. Yeah, yeah. What about Washington, D.C.? Are they not one of the 100 largest districts? They are, actually. So they finished, uh, I think, fifth in Brookings huh. um, and second in ours. Yeah, so um, I think I think that's probably just down to, again, a little bit less emphasis on um, things like vouchers. Yeah, and, and more focus on charters. So, yeah, and, and uh, you know, look, the Denver point is is important because we found Denver to be in the top three. We basically said, look, New Orleans, Washington, D.C., Denver, you know, we can have these interesting debates about which model we like better between the three, but those three are way ahead sure. of everybody else. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, we, we have some agreement with that, with Brookings on that. I, the, I think actually the level of agreement is kind of striking. You know, if you looked at the headlines today, uh, the presidential race, you would think that Democrats and Republicans cannot agree on anything, <laughs> but right? Hey, look at this. But hey, Yes, look, here we have a center-left and a center-right organization, essentially um, with different points of emphasis, but not a ton of disagreement about what's good for kids at the end of the day. Um, so, Very well said. We will end on that happy note. All right. All right. And, and next week, we'll get back to partisan bickering. Okay, that is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week, I'm Robert Pondicio. And I'm Mike Petrilli, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington. Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.